Turn with me to Matthew chapter two, if you can, as we continue on this theme of wise men still seek him. Last week, we looked at Simeon from Luke's gospel, who was wisely waiting patiently for the coming of the Messiah. Didn't give up, is holding on with hope. And he had the privilege of being one of the earlier worshipers, earliest worshipers of Jesus. And now we're gonna look at the wise men here who were also some of the early worshipers of Jesus. And we're gonna look at the wise men, which is, is you know, where the saying wise men still seek him comes from. And I, like I said, there's a lot of us that can tend to think of ourselves as being wise and yet finding ourselves uh, thinking, you know, foolishly or doing foolish things. It was on Christmas, around Christmas time, where a judge had a, a defendant come into his court. It's because of Christmas, the judge was feeling a little bit, you know, gracious and, and, and in a giving mood, he asked the defendant, what crime have you committed? And the defendant said, well, uh, doing my Christmas shopping early. And the judge said, well, that doesn't seem like much of a crime. How early were you doing it? The defendant said, well, before the stores opened, which is not a wise, a wise thing to do by any means. But see, like I said, a lot of people can think of themselves as wise, but what truly makes a person wise. And so we're going to be confronted in our passage here in Matthew 2 with three groups of people. And what's really standing out is what's causing a person to be wise is how they're responding to Jesus. We're going to look at that. We're also going to look at primarily the three gifts that these wise men gave. But look at Matthew 2, starting in verse 1 with me. And here's what we read there. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and we've come to worship him. Now that's a pretty wise act right there. Now, like you saw in the video, we don't know a lot about the wise men what made them wise. We don't really know where they came from, how many there were exactly. Now that word wise man comes from the word magi or magos in the Greek, which is where we get our word magician from. Now these weren't magicians in the sense like, you know, they're pulling a bunny out of a top hat and, and impressing you with all these tricks and things like that. No, a, a, a wise man or magi was really those that were like advisors in the royal court, say, to a king, especially in the east. Think back to the days of Babylon and, and Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar is looking to have his dream interpreted, it tells us in Daniel 2, verse 2, then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. So all these three, the magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, these are like the, the magi. The wise men. So astrology was something very much associated with these uh, wise men. And uh, it's made very clear to us in this passage in Matthew 2 that these wise men have seen a star. A star that captivated them, that grabbed their attention, that was distinct and very unique. It was a star that, that again, grabbed a hold of them, that moved them, you see, and it moves them all the way from where they were, which we don't exactly know where that was, and it takes them to Jerusalem, most likely some great distance. But notice what they say as they come into Jerusalem. Where's this king of the Jews? Not because we've seen a star, but we've seen his star. So they associated this star with a person. But where'd they get that idea from? Well, again, going back to 
even the days of Babylon. Who was another person that was in, in Babylon during the days of Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel, a very wise Jewish man that's taken into captivity in Babylon. Daniel's a man that knows scripture. He, he knows what, what the word has been prophesying regarding a Messiah to come. And no doubt Daniel's there sharing this interesting truth of God's word with people versus props like Numbers 24, verse 17, that says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So that's a, an odd passage, an odd verse, but it's one that has been recognized and associated with being a messianic passage, speaking about the Messiah that is indeed to come. So very likely Daniel's there. He's prophesying. He's got timeline. Daniel chapter nine got a timeline of the, the coming of the Messiah. So perhaps these magi passing it on generation to generation are revealing a time that the Messiah is going to come. And these wise men now are waiting and now they see a distinct star that's leading them to Jerusalem and they come and they're traveling a long way. Just have the opportunity to come and worship this King of the Jews. Aren't you glad that you don't have to travel a long way to come and just worship Jesus? Now, some of you might be going, oh, you don't know how long I traveled, man. I've come all the way from Vancouver or Abbotsford today, maybe Chile. I don't know. The wise men would be going, oh, psst, give me a break already, right? We've traveled a long way on, not by car, that's for sure. We don't know how they travel, but it certainly wasn't by car. These wise men travel a long way. And yet we have, and what I'm getting at is that we have the privilege of coming and worshiping Jesus now, worshiping God wherever we are, because the whole story of Christmas is that he came to be Emmanuel, God with us. Imagine that. That we don't have to jump through any hoops, we don't have to go through any great extent or measures just to have an audience with God. He's God with us and we get to worship him and seek him in all that we do and wherever we are. So thank the Lord for that. But reading on now in Matthew 2, and again, Looking at verse three, we read this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod sees this kind of, you know, big interruption happening in Jerusalem. He sees this, this uh, caravan coming in of wise men. Again, we don't know how many there were. There may have been three. There may have been 300. We don't know. So they come into Jerusalem and there's a bit of, you know, a hype now coming in. Herod's going, what's going on? What's happening? And so what Herod does is he calls the religious leaders of the people, Jewish religious leaders, scribes. They were ones that were the, you know, interpreters or the specialists of the law of God's word. And they open up God's word and they're like, oh yeah, Herod, we know exactly where this king is to be born. It tells us, they, it, it tells us right from the prophet and they're quoting from Micah chapter five, verse two, that tells us that out of Bethlehem shall come a ruler. And so they're passing on this information to Herod. Now what's remarkable is that Micah, the prophet, is recording this scripture some 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. 
That's remarkable. And what that reveals to us is that the Bible is not written by men. It's divinely written. And there are hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that are the mathematical odds of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies is an astronomical number. It's truly amazing that this is a book that is not just something to give us good morals. This is God breathed and it's dependable. It's trustworthy. And these prophecies that are being fulfilled give credibility to the truth and accuracy of scripture. And so these scribes are passing this on to Herod. Oh yeah, we know where he's gonna be born, Bethlehem. So, well, and that's interesting because, you know, Bethlehem to us is a pretty significant place. Whenever we go to Israel, everybody wants to go to Bethlehem, birthplace of Christ. It, it holds significance now on this side of, of history. But in the time that Mike is writing this, Bethlehem was not a, a place of distinction or honor. People would have thought, a ruler's going to come out of Bethlehem? Give me a break. It's like saying a ruler's going to come out of Surrey or something like that. I shouldn't have gone there, but I did. Forgive me. Shouldn't? Okay, we'll move on. But it, it had no special place. So people would have been hearing this, seeing this going, Bethlehem? Come on, you're off your rocker. And yet look at what was fulfilled. Did you just look at what God did in order to get... Mary and Joseph weren't from Bethlehem, they're from Nazareth. But again, a, a decree from Caesar goes out to take a census. It moves Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem where their uh, lineage was from to do this count. And so God is ordering all things to bring them into Bethlehem to fulfill scripture. And so reading on in verse seven, it says, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, Herod. Give us another line here. Give us something else. Like He has no desire to do this. He's trying to feed this line to the wise men. Now in verse nine, when they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. God's guiding them. God's eating them and they're seeing the star and they're excited about it. And when they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they'd opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So I mentioned earlier how we're gonna look at, at three responses from three different groups of people and we're gonna get there. But before we get there, I wanna look at these three gifts that are presented because these three gifts paint uh, an incredible prophetic picture for us of the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had a, a threefold office in his ministry, the office of king, priest, and prophet. And these gifts all point so wonderfully to that work of Jesus. So this first gift that's given is gold. And gold was something that was a gift worthy of a king. It was associated with royalty and kingship. You see kings with gold crown, that gold scepter, that's a symbol of authority and, and power, rulership. Uh, when archaeologists were, you know, uh, digging out things, they came across a tomb, and that tomb had gold stuff in it. They automatically 
assumed it was a very good indication that this was a person of real high uh, importance or most likely royalty. Now, gold for us today is something that's quite common, isn't it? We're, we're familiar with gold. Many of you are giving a, a significant other this Christmas, perhaps gold earrings. You got a gold bracelet under the tree. Some of you wives are praying, I hope he got it right this year. <laughs> and, and some of you will be spending the night on the couch because you bought your wife a mop and thought that was a good idea. <laughs> but gold is familiar to us. Gold is something that's very common. But in this day, not so much. Not so much. It was something that was really reserved for royalty. And that's very significant because as the wise men give this gift of gold, they didn't come into this house now. And again, this is a little bit after the birth of Jesus. He's moved out of, you know, the cave, wherever he was, into a house now. Maybe a year has passed. We don't know exactly. But sometimes passed. And they're seeing this little infant, this little child. And, and they don't just all of a sudden go, whoa, hold on. We thought we were going to be encountering a king, somebody with great power, somebody with great authority. But this little child, like, come on. We better hold on. We better hold on to this gift until we really see what this is going to amount to. Really see if he's going to be able to be responsible with this or not. They don't hold back, though. They give this gift to this child. You see, I think we can oftentimes this time of year be very preoccupied over Christmas with the nice scene of the nativity and little baby Jesus in a manger to where we can get distracted or miss out on the truth of who he really is. You see, Jesus came not just to be a king. He came as a king. I love the song, this time of year, what child is this? When you get to the course and it starts to build and it says this this is Christ the King. That's who Jesus is. He came to be a king. He's always, he didn't come to be a king. He's always been the king. But now he comes in this small little package by which many would have just overlooked and missed it. And many did all through the life of Jesus. But he came to be a king and it's been prophesied all along. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six to seven says, for unto us a child is born Unto us the son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. There's authority. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there'll be no end. And upon the throne of David, the throne of David, and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He came as King Jesus. And he's come to be the king of your life and to take up the throne, the position of the throne of your heart. And you see, it's when we allow him in to say, Jesus, yes, be the king of my life. Be the one that's ruling and reigning in my life. That's when he establishes his rulership and reign is when we experience peace. A lot of people are looking for peace this time of year. We, we talk about it. Angels said, we come to give you, you know, glad tidings of, uh, of peace and, and goodwill. And we, we sing about all these things. There's a lot of people that are lacking peace. They're fighting through traffic just to get their last minute Christmas shopping done. They're worried about if I'm going to overcook the turkey or not, did I get the right gift or not? And there's a lot of lack of peace. You see, when Jesus comes and he 
occupies the throne of your heart and he takes up that rightful position as king in your life. It's there that we begin to walk in the peace that goes beyond our circumstances and surroundings. It's the peace, not just of God, but now it's peace with God. And we get to enjoy this blessed, wonderful peace that Jesus offers through his rule and his reign in our lives. So we've seen this gold that Jesus comes as King Jesus. And then the second gift we see is frankincense. And that's really just nothing more than incense, to be frank with you. It's just incense. And you see, that was associated with priests, that, that second office of Jesus. He came to be priest, hold the office of priest. And incense was something that priests would bring into the tabernacle and later in the temple. And it'd be offered up as a sweet fragrance before the Lord. You lift it up and it'd just be that sweet burning fragrance before the Lord. And it symbolized that act of prayer and worship. Worship before the Lord. And all through the Bible, we see that picture of it being used that way. David would write in Psalm 141, verse two, let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Revelation 5, 8, the scene around the throne of God in heaven. It says that there's the four living creatures and the 24 elders all having these bowls full of incense, which it says is the prayer, prayers of the saints. And so what we see here with this idea of incense is it's a, a reminder of this wonderful work of Jesus as our high priest. Because a, a priest's role was to go before God on behalf of the people, representing the people before God, but also to represent God before the people. Kind of an intermediary, a mediator, you see. That's what the priest would do, but now with Jesus as our high priest, we have access to God. We have the opportunity and privilege to come and and pray and lift up worship, worship that's accepted before God, prayer that's heard. Prayer is not just coming and reciting some shopping list, you know, God, I need you to do this, I need you to do that for me. It's communion with God. It's just fellowship with God. And we've been invited in now to enjoy that with the Lord, not having to go through a priest, not through some other mediator, but now we have access to God because of Jesus Christ, to where our worship and our our prayers offered up as like sweet incense, uh, sweet fragrance before the Lord. It's accepted before God. It tells us in Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 to 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Catch this now. So, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Guys, because of what Jesus has provided for us and who he is to us, one of the great purposes of him coming was to bring us to the Father with access before him. That's an amazing gift that we have. Are we seeking the Lord? Are we communing with the Father, knowing that we have access to come boldly to the throne of grace? So we've seen gold, we've seen the frankincense. Last gift, gift we see is, is myrrh. And that speaks to that third office of Jesus' prophet. How so? Well, 
A prophet was one that spoke on behalf of God. They ministered to people the, the message of God. Now, this time that Jesus comes into this world was a time where it was very dark, very dry, where they have not heard the voice of God. It's been these, what's known as the 400 silent years, this intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. And people have wondered, has God left us? God forsaken us? Has God just moved on to something else? Uh, are we ever going to hear from God again? And yet it's here at the birth of Jesus that the voice of God begins to break through again, break through the silence. We heard it with the angels to the shepherds in Luke chapter two saying, do not be afraid for be all that bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there's born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel said to Joseph, and she will bring forth the son and you shall call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. Now these announcements were huge news, but, but how they got received was a matter of interpretation because their hearing of a savior is Christ the Lord. They, they understood Christ spoke of the Messiah, the promised one of God that was to come. They know that. They know he's going to be a deliverer, say, but, but that's oftentimes where it stopped with them, that he was going to come and be a political figure. He was going to be a dominant ruler that was going to come and, and lead Israel into this greatness again and independence as a nation and overthrow uh, that Roman yoke of, of bondage. So they picture this Messiah, the, the Christ, the Savior, to be that kind of a figure. And really exclusive for Israel. But yet we see here, that's gonna to be to all people. The wise men were not Jewish. They're symbolizing that this truth and reality of who Jesus is, is for all people. But again, now, this is where the myrrh paints a very different but prophetic picture for us. See, myrrh was a burial spice. It was used for embalming. And as much as the other gifts points to Jesus's kingship and his ministry, providing access to the father, this gift of myrrh points to Jesus's sacrificial death. Sacrificial death. That would have been a big shock to many who were, like I said, awaiting for a savior to come and bring them into political greatness again as a nation. But now they're hearing of a savior that's to save them. And they're thinking a savior that's going to die. He can't even save himself. How's he going to save us? But this is exactly what God wanted to communicate to the people at this time. Because you see, the world was plagued because of sin. And the human race was in dire need of saving. Our sin had left us cut off from God with no hope in this world. And we know that the wages or the cost of sin is death. But you see, to spare you from that death. Jesus came into this world. He was clothed in humanity and he lived a righteous life, the life that we were unable to live. Jesus came to this world with one important mission in mind, and that was to go to the cross where he would lay his life down as a sacrifice and there appease the wrath of God for our sin. And through this incredible act, we have been provided with the forgiveness of sin with reconciliation, with justification, where we can now be made right with God. 
none of us can be made right with God by being a good enough person because else is we all fall short. Of God's ideal and standard of righteousness, we all fall short of that. Nobody can earn their way to the Father. It's not by going to church, doing charitable works. It's not by being a good person. All that leaves you short of God's ideal of righteousness. Jesus came as the only righteous one. He was fully God, yet fully man. And he came to not just be one of us, but to represent us. He lived a perfect life without sin. And he went to the cross and in doing so was able to take our sin upon himself. And like I said, appease that wrath of God. Listen, that's what Christmas is really all about. We celebrate Jesus' willingness to give the blessing of heaven and come to this world humbly as one of us, but we would be very remiss if we just left it all right there. His coming to this world was always to lead to the cross and to our salvation. He was the lamb that slain from the foundation of the world. This gift of myrrh reminds us what Jesus would accomplish for you and for me. It's interesting, in Isaiah, when we hear prophetic passages that speak about Christ's second coming, when he comes and he ushers in the millennial reign of Christ, it tells us in Isaiah 60, verse 6, that the multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. Two gifts this time. What's missing? The myrrh. Why? Because Christ's work is already completed at the cross. It's no longer to be repeated. It's no longer something that's needed. And here, at his first coming, it's all pointing to what Jesus would ultimately do for us. In Revelation 7, or sorry, in Revelation 2 and 3, we see the mention of seven churches of Asia. One of those churches being the church of Smyrna, which means myrrh. And that was a church that underwent great suffering and persecution. And that myrrh, interestingly, is a, a resin taken from a tree that when squashed, crushed, begins to let off a beautiful fragrance. And that's such a picture of what Jesus did for us as he went to the tree, the cross for you and me. He was crushed, wounded for our transgressions. And yet he died, but rose again, providing the beauty of life and eternal life for each and every one of us. It's interesting that in each of those Churches in Revelation 2 3, Jesus is given a description of himself. And to the church at Smyrna, he says that he is the first and the last who was dead and came to life. That's what Jesus has done for us. He died, but he's alive today to secure everlasting life to all who would believe in him. But that leads us into that question now for us What do you believe today? And how have you responded? To Jesus. Because in this account in Matthew 2, we have three groups of people that responded in very different ways. We have, first of all, Herod. And how did he respond? He was threatened by Jesus, by the mention of this one, this king of the Jews that the wise men are seeking there in Jerusalem, finding out it's in Bethlehem. They're seeking this king of the Jews, and Herod is threatened because he's seeing that this is going to totally perhaps usurp his authority, it's going to upset the apple cart. Herod's the guy that wants to be in control and continue his rule. I think that's 
how many people have looked at their own life in regards to Jesus. They've seen Jesus and said, you know what, Lord? I want to continue to hold on to the reins a little longer. I want to be the one that's calling the shots. I don't want to give up ownership of my life. I want to be in control. I want to rule. And Herod, sadly, failed to experience the blessing that God had for him. Have you held off so long because you want to be in control? Thinking, I don't want to surrender my life to Jesus. And I ask, how is that going for you? Because we have everything to lose by holding on to the reins. But we have everything to gain by surrendering our life to the one that made us, to the one that created us so that we would be in relationship with him, fellowship with him. And that comes only through faith in Jesus. The second group of people are those religious leaders, the scribes, that Herod called to find out where this king of the Jews is to be born. And they knew exactly where, why? Because they had the word. They have the scriptures. They know exactly how this is all lining up. But yet, they were very indifferent. They didn't hear this news and go, ooh, people are coming to seek this king of the Jews. We better go find out. They don't even bother going to Bethlehem. It's only a five-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And they're not even interested. They're apathetic. And there are many that way today that are just apathetic. They're just indifferent. They're just like, yeah, you know, I, I got a Bible. I've been in church once in a while, but yeah, I'm good. Everything's fine. I don't really think I need to seek out Jesus. I don't really think I need to investigate this any longer. Everything's good. I don't really need it. I'm not really, I'm not really threatened like Herod was, but, but yet you're indifferent and you're putting off again what Jesus has for you. And then we see the wise men and they came seeking after Jesus at all costs. I mean, that was a significant venture, just leaving where they were to come through desert, through a great, uh, most likely a great distance to seek after Jesus. And when they get there, the Lord continues to guide them. They're exceedingly glad. And they come in and they begin just to worship Jesus, giving these gifts. And they have the blessing of encountering the very king who's come to save them. And these gifts all point to that reality and truth. The Bible says one of the most well-known verses that God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. See, this doesn't happen by you earning your way in. There's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy to receive this, but to simply surrender to Jesus and give your life to him. And he will change you from the inside out. I love this last verse that we have in this passage in Matthew 2 and verse 12. What does it say there? It says, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now, they decided, let's avoid Herod. That's, that's a very wise thing right there. That was good. Good choice on their part. But it says that they left departing another way. Now, let me take some liberty here and read into that a little bit. Because that no doubt 
was a different way, another way directionally, or I believe it was also another way spiritually. Because they left changed. They left different the way they came because they've encountered the living God. They went out another way. And that's what God would have for each and every one of us is to see us changed as we give our life to Jesus as we're made new. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, and I need a change because I've been just struggling through life. I've been fighting through things and I've not been experiencing peace. I've not been experiencing blessing of the Lord. Man, I need something more. And that something more is found in Jesus. And it's only found in Jesus. Because he came to fix every person's problem. And that was ultimately sin that separated us from God. And he came to this world that we could be forgiven. He paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. He died and he rose again, that you could be cleansed and made new and be given the sweet gift of everlasting life. And maybe you're here today saying, man, I need that. I've been either like Herod, thinking, no, I gotta hold the reins. Or maybe you've been like the scribes and religious people just indifferent, thinking like, everything's fine but you're missing out on what God has for you. Oh, would you come like the wise men and lay it all down and say, yeah, we want to worship him. We want to live for him. We want to receive Jesus. And you can do that so simply. I'm so glad that God's not made this hard. It's not joining a club. It's not, you got to read the Bible five times. It's not, you got to, you know, do this or do that. The Bible says, you just need to simply Admit your sin and turn from it and put your trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and to bring forgiveness to you. I'm gonna invite the worship team up and if you're listening to this today and saying, yeah, I need that change. I need to receive Jesus. I wanna give you the opportunity to do that today. I'm gonna ask everybody to close your eyes. And if you're here today saying, yeah, I don't know what would happen in my life if I were to die or if Jesus were to come back, would I go to heaven? The Bible says that you need to be born again. It means it's not by you and your effort. It's by being changed and made new through Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're saying, yeah, I want to be right with God. Would you pray a simple prayer like this? Just pray it in your heart. Worship team, you guys can come up. Just pray a simple prayer like this. Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of your saving. I'm in need of your forgiveness of sin. So as I confess that sin, I also pray, Lord, that you'd forgive me because I believe that you came to this world it's fully God and fully man. You came to die on a cross and yet you rose again, securing life for me. And I want that life. I want your life, Jesus. So I give you mine.
and I receive yours in place. Come and be my Lord and my Savior and be my King. I want to live my life for you now. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. So the Bible says that if you just simply call it to Jesus, you'll be saved. And if you prayed that prayer today, you're now a child of God, part of the family of God, and given that gift of eternal life. And I would love to share more with you. If you prayed that today, would you come and talk to me after the service? Or there'll be people available in the front for prayer. Come and talk with one of them if you can. And they would love to share more with you and, and uh, just encourage you in this new life in Jesus. That's why he came. And we are so blessed because of it. Amen.